Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, hey, good to see everybody. Welcome you online and welcome you here in the room. And I'm so excited to be here. This church is my really first church family. And so I'm just always thrilled because I uh, feel like home when I, when I come back here. So um, here we are. I'm, I'm thankful that uh, this has been a place and this has been a people that have shaped my life. And, and really, it's a good segue to what we're going to be talking about today because what I want to talk to you about is this idea of formative moments, formative moments. What we could call that is an aha moment, perhaps, but I like the word formative because it's built around this idea that, that it's something in your life that has formed you or shaped your perspective in a significant way. So that could be your worldview, it could be your hierarchy of values, could be some thought process of yours like, um, that, that makes a significant difference like raising your kids or it could be your understanding of, uh, of faith and religion. And if we took time to scan the timeline of our lives, we could all probably point to different pivotal moments along the way and we might say, man, that was a decision that I made that changed everything for me or that was an experience that really shaped how I viewed something in my life or, or, or this thing essentially was an epiphany for me. I had one of these formative moments in the early days of my faith and it may sound simple as I tell you the story, but it had a profound effect on uh, how I viewed my relationship with God going forward and, and really changed how I approached it. I was a freshman in college. I remember this moment when I was sitting with my buddies in my dorm room and we were all drinking beer and ready to go out on the town, sort of a typical, I guess, college thing to do. But, but what led up to that moment for me was weeks of internal processing of questions that I had. Of course, as a college freshman, I'm, I'm out on my own for the first time, and I'm beginning to think about my future and all different sorts of other things. But, but there was something deeper happening inside of me. I was starting to contemplate in a way I never had, what is my purpose in this life, and who am I really going to become? And these kinds of questions were, were bubbling up inside of me, stirring. And as my buddies that night decided to go out on the town, I told them, I'm going to stay back, not feeling so good. And so off they went, and I remember the moment walking into my dorm room, and it was as if I was drawn to my knees, and I began to pray, and I began to talk to God. I, I sensed this, this openness to God and this need for God, and this longing for God in my life that I never had before. I remember thinking some version of, I don't want to live my life as I think I should live it, but God, I want to align my life as you designed me to live it, and this conversation I was having about purpose and, and who I was becoming culminated in that moment, and I, and I made a fundamental decision that changed the rest of my life. I decided to, to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, no turning back. In essence, I decided to stop living my way and start living God's way. Then a few days later, I went to this group meeting called FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I was a, a baseball player in college, and I met this football player named Kevin. And we had this conversation, and over the conversation, I shared with him about my newfound decision 
to follow Jesus. And I'll never forget the words he said to me. He said in that conversation, he said, let me tell you something. If I could tell you anything, this is what I would tell you. He said, he said don't just become a Christian. He said, become a disciple. Don't just become a Christian, become a disciple. And I wasn't certain what he meant in that moment, and he went on to elaborate and brought clarity. And essentially he said this. He said, when Jesus said, come follow me in the Gospels, when he said, come follow me, what he's not saying is that he wants us to ascribe to a certain religion. What he's not saying is he wants us to establish the right beliefs and act the right way, and that is Christianity. That is, that's not what Jesus was saying. What, what, what Kevin said that day to me, he said, when Jesus says, come follow me, he is inviting you into relationship with him. He's inviting you by his grace to receive and respond that, to that grace in a way that you make a wholehearted commitment to him. To him in relationship, to following his teachings, and to aligning your life with his mission. And for those who truly follow Jesus, what ensues after that is the invitation to transformation in your life. In essence, Kevin was telling me, look, Jesus wants to transform the essence of who you are. He wants to give you purpose in how you live. He wants to change your character, the way you relate to people. He wants to change how you view where you find your worth and identity and how you view your destiny and discover it. And all that compelled me into this new walk with God, this new walk of faith. But, but here's the unfortunate thing. In the world of Christianity, that's far too uncommon to the Christian experience that we would experience this level of transformation. But in that formative conversation for me, Kevin free reframed my perspective about faith. And it's always been interesting to me that if you look at the scriptures, the word Christian is only used three times. Only three times. And in every case that word is used, it's not positive. It's never used by a follower of Jesus to describe themselves. It's always used by someone outside the Jesus community to describe someone inside the Jesus community, and it's not positive. These people were, were becoming followers of Jesus, and they started to look similar, and in fact, persecution started to happen, and they were spread, and you find some of this in the book of Acts, and people were like, oh, those are the Christians, right, because they all looked similar, and they were acting like Jesus, and, and, and they were a disruption to society, but there is a word in the New Testament that does get used quite frequently, in fact, 269 times if you were to count, and it's the word disciple, disciple. But where does this word come from, and, and what are the implications of that word in your life and mine? And I'll go back into the first century for just a few moments today, and I'll start here. This idea of discipleship that we hear in the scriptures, which is like a growing faith, to say it simply, but this idea of discipleship it was invented in a place called Galilee. There was a small town in Galilee, Capernaum, which had less than 2,000 people. It was this little rural village. It was, according to scriptures, Jesus' hometown, or his second home, you could say. And it's reasonable to think that Jesus intentionally and purposefully went to Galilee, and this little rural town to be among the best and the brightest because this was the hub of discipleship in that day. It's interesting that, that Jesus chose this place and this model, essentially, of discipleship because the people in this little rural town, they, they weren't 
so sophisticated. They, they weren't known for being educated or cultured, really. But what they were known for is their remarkable passion. More specifically, their passion for faith and obedience, their passion for, for debating the scriptures and talking about things like the coming of Messiah. And this was the place where rabbis went, the best of the best, to find disciples, and where disciples went, future disciples at least, to find a rabbi. This is again where Jesus went on purpose. In Matthew's gospel, we discover that according to the gospels, the four books that begin the New Testament, Jesus selected this town as the center of his public ministry in Galilee after he left the small mountainous village of Nazareth. And then we pick up in Matthew chapter four. It's, it's the context of this culture, and this is where Jesus starts his ministry. It's where he went to intentionally, and we read this. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also known as Peter, and Andrew, two brothers. They were throwing the net into the water, for they were fishermen, or they fished for a living. And Jesus calls out to them, come follow me. And I will make you fishers of men, is one translation, or, or and I will show you how to fish for people. And then in verse 20, they left their nets at once and followed him. Then verse 21, a little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. Again, they were fishermen. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving their boat, and even leaving their father behind. And then it says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. And I wanna unwrap that from a first century context a bit this morning. Because Jesus comes along as a rabbi, he enters this rabbinical system in the first century, in this little town, Capernaum, and he invites some, what the scriptures say, ordinary unschooled people, ordinary unschooled men, to be what? To be his Hebrew word for disciple was Talmud. He wants these guys to be his Talmud. Everybody say Talmud. Even you online, say Talmud. Can't hear you, but I hear you. Right, so, so this Talmud word meant this, in essence. It was one who seeks to become like their master. It's sort of like the concept of an apprentice, but it's like apprentice on steroids. Let's unlayer that, because the Talmud they desire not just to learn from the teaching of the rabbi, but to embody the everyday practical realities of that rabbi and to carry out even the rabbi's mission. That, that's what they aspire to do and be. And, and embedded into this word, this Hebrew word, was an emphasis on strong relationship between the rabbi and the disciple, which makes sense considering if, if I want to become like someone else, Close relationship is essential. Close relationship is essential. You see, a Talmud in that day was consumed with passion to emulate or imitate his rabbi. From the moment they woke up to the moment they went to sleep, they were virtually obsessed with being like that rabbi, learning to live just like he would live if he was living in their place. Now, that didn't mean the Talmud had to change their personality or not be the person God designed them to be, but it did mean that they would pursue significant transformation in their life by following the rabbi and learning everything they could about him as they followed. 
Along the way, the Talmud's relationship with the rabbi would cause him to reorder his priorities, to refine his passions and pursuits, to reconsider his perspectives. I mean, his focus, his mindset, his values were all changing in the context of this relationship. Transformation was happening in his everyday life. And that included changing the way he treated people because he saw his rabbi treat people differently or treat difficult people differently. It, it, it involved things like decision-making or how that rabbi would navigate, you know, almost any aspect of life. In, in other words, if a Talmud had a decision to make, he would want to know what would the Talmud decide? What would be that, that rabbi's, sorry, what would the rabbi decide? What would be that rabbi's thought process in their decision? What decision would they make? Because that's how I want to live and that's the decision I want to make. And along the way, as they followed this rabbi, the Talmud would be formed into someone different. It was a process, but they were becoming someone different because a, a Talmud always considered what his rabbi would do if he was in his place. And over time, what you also would begin to see happening is his instincts and his behaviors, his attitudes and his viewpoints would look more and more like that rabbi. I, I love the great Dallas Willard and he, he's one of the experts, really, in, in discipleship in, in the last century, really. And he said this. He said, discipleship is the relationship I stand into Jesus Christ in order that I might take on his character. As his disciples, I am learning how to live my life in the kingdom as he would live if he were I. The natural outcome is that my behavior is transformed. Increasingly, I routinely and easily do the things he said and did. So several years ago, I had this experience that was a unique experience, I guess you could say, and, it, and it, it kind of is a metaphor that shows us how God designed us to live in relationship with him. And as any story goes, there's a brave man, there's a beautiful woman, and there's a weak man. I'll let you decide who's who. So one day, this guy, Paul, my friend, comes up to me and says, hey, you want to go skydiving? And some people do foolish things in their life. Perhaps you can judge me today and say, I did a foolish thing, but here we go. Paul said, I'll, I want you to go skydiving and I'll pay for it. So I mean, how can you say no to that, right? So I'm in, the, in my 20s, I say yes. A big group of us decide to go. Somehow I convinced my, uh, at the time, girlfriend who I was falling in love with to go with me. That's a story for another day. I don't know why she went or how she went, but we'll chalk it up to young love of some kind or another. But off we went, four of us are in the car. We're driving out. Three of us are terrified. And just so happens, I'm not terrified. I'll say yet, right? So I get out the camera. It was a big bulky camcorder kind of camera, not an iPhone kind of camera. It was a few years ago. But anyhow, um, I get out the camera and I decide to have a little fun with my terrified friends. And so I'm filming that and I'm beginning to ask them, we'll call them obnoxious questions, okay? So I ask them questions like, so what are your last words on the final day of your life? <laughs> right, not, not really the you know, thing you wanna hear. They're like, shut up, you know, like put the camera off, right, that kind of thing. So anyway, we, we drive out there 45 minutes, I make a fool of myself, little do I know what's coming, and we get to the skydiving place, and of course we get there, and we pay and all that, and we sign our lives away, essentially, and then we go to the training room. So then you have these expert skydivers, these master jumpers who have jumped out of planes hundreds, I think thousands of times, and they begin to do demonstrations and training, and they're repeating themselves, and they're trying to get us to make sure we know everything we need to know to do this. This is a pretty serious thing, right? So um, they do tell us one really important detail that I was really glad to know. I kind of knew going in, but they tell us this, most important detail of the day. You're going not to fly solo, you're going to fly what's called tandem. 
right? Meaning they attach a master jumper to your back. They harness you two together. You're sort of like one. And I was all good with that, right? In fact, I was really glad about that, except there was one problem. It was the guy who was tandem to my wife, who, let's just say he was six foot two, very handsome, very built strong. Shall I go on? Yes, I will. He had an Australian accent. And good grief, he flies, he jumps out of airplanes for a living. I mean, you know, it's like, come on, you got to put her with him, right? Okay, so anyway, I wasn't jealous or anything, side note. But here we go. So we're, we're, we're ready to go. We're trained up. We have a tandem partner, and off we walk to the plane. We're walking up to this plane, and I'm telling you, I see this plane, and let's just say it wasn't something that looked like Elon Musk invented it. It was, it was more like something Wilbur and Orville Wright looked like they invented, right? So... It was old. It was like a flip the propeller and see if it goes kind of moment for me. But I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get a little scared, but okay, here we go. So the door's open. We jump in. There's about 30 of us. And up we go, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 13,000 feet. Doors open up, right? Game on. And talk about fear. A fear bomb exploded in me, right? It was like, it was like latent fear. And good news, though, I was in the back of the plane, only one person behind me, 20 whatever people in front of me. So I'm like, okay, I got a couple minutes here, I think, to muster up some courage. So this is, this is good news for me. So, so then I watch as the doors open, right? Each person inches up to the door, and then it's like, ah, 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 right? They're just disappearing, <laughs> screaming, right, in violent terror, you know? And they're gone, they're gone, they're gone, right? It's all my friends, you know? And I'm like, this is crazy. So, of course, you know, Thoughts go through my head like, can I tap out anywhere? Is there any exit door, right? It's like, but then there was one problem. There was someone behind me. And guess who it was? Yeah, hint, hint, the beautiful girl in the story. Guess who the weak man was? Me, right? And, and I look back and I'm secretly hoping she's like, rescue me, right? But no, she's like, hurry up, go. <laughs> so I, so I, I, I inch my way up to the, to the door, you know, the open door, and I, and I get there, and I do something you never should do if you ever go to And Here's a little piece of advice. Don't look down, right, because I got dizzy more than ever, right, stomach queasy. I'm like, I'm still wanting to tap out, but I'm like, my manhood's on the line here. I'm not tapping out. And off we go. Next thing I know, we do a 360 roll of some kind, sensory overload. I'm spinning through the air with my tandem, and, I, and then for 60 seconds, you go, I think they say 200 feet per second which is hard to even imagine, but you're flying through the air. You're going 60, you know, in 60 seconds, and then the 60 seconds is over, and they sort of let you know, and then it's time to pull a parachute. So what do I do? I forget to pull the parachute. It's like the one thing you gotta remember is pull the parachute. It's like, is there anything else more important when you're flying tandem especially, but even beyond that, no. There's nothing more important to pull the, than pull the parachute. So I didn't pull the parachute. I did get to fly an extra 1,000 feet, right? <laughs> but I don't think the tandem was happy. And so he taps me, you know, on the, on the side and points at the parachute. He's like, you gotta pull this thing, right? It's time. If you don't pull it, I'm gonna pull it for you. And, 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 and the tandem's there. And by the way, rewind for a second. When I was on the edge about to jump, the tandem told me, he said to me, because he could, he could sense my hesitation, and he's like, I got you, man. We're in this together. We're going all the way together, right? All the way to the ground. And, and, and then this other moment where he taps me and he's like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you know, pull the parachute. So anyway, I pull the parachute, I'm flying through the sky, gliding down, you know, and this is a beautiful moment, right? There's like a pink sky, sunset sort of thing. There's rushing, or sorry, rolling meadows, you know, down below. And, um, and we're just sort of gliding. It was a beautiful moment. And I get to the, to the ground and, and, and it was exhilarating, you know, and I thought to myself, man, I want this to be my hobby, 
But I was an intern at the time, so that didn't really work with the budget, you know, unless someone was gonna pay for me every time like my friend Paul did. But anyhow, but though it wasn't a life hobby <laughs> that it became, it was a life metaphor that it became. Because the idea of, of tandem is I think exactly how God wants us to move through life, connected to him, harnessed together with him. And when there's uncertainty, he's got you. He's got our back. He's like, I'm right there with you. Right? When we're scared and we need courage, he infuses us with courage. He senses our hesitation. Right? He's right there with us the whole time. There's connection and, and, and closeness and proximity. He, and he says to disciples, essentially, that I want you to fly tandem through life with me. That we're gonna be in this together. And that when you need perspective and you need guidance and, and you need the master of all life, I'm gonna be right there with you. And along the way, when we stay in close relationship, he shapes our priorities, he changes our perspectives. He, he, he shapes and forms our passions and our pursuits. And he gives us wisdom that we need for life all along the way, keeping us collectively with our community on mission. This is life as a disciple. It is life in tandem with God, marked by closeness and connection. And, and if we rewind and go back into the first century, it's so interesting because before a Talmud or potential Talmud would enter into this tandem relationship with a rabbi, there was this long process that was embedded into the Jewish culture of the first century. I mean, virtually every young Jewish boy had aspirations to become a rabbi one day. This was the highest honor in Jewish culture. So when a boy typically was about 10 years old, they had likely memorized the Torah, which is what we know as the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, you guys know this, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, I'm not saying they memorized the five names of the books. I'm saying they memorized every word of the books. And then, fast forward, right, between the ages of 10 and 14, the boys memorized the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. That's how many books? 39 books that they had to memorize, typically by somewhere between 10 and 14, but by 14. Then by the age of 14, a Jewish boy who demonstrated exceptional knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, right, they had this kind of knowledge. They were a standout among their peers. These boys would approach a rabbi in that culture. They would want to show that rabbi that they could, in fact, become like them. So they would choose which rabbi they thought they could become like. They would, they would listen and they would learn. They would follow that rabbi around. The rabbi would notice. And this was the only way that that young Jewish boy could eventually become a rabbi. If, if, if it was, you know, given to him or he, if, he, if he was invited to, you know, essentially follow that rabbi, that was the only way through an existing rabbi. But only the best of the best who could perform well enough and have enough acumen and proficiency would be chosen by that rabbi. So somewhere between the age of 14 and 15, right, this is, we're talking high school, sophomore, roughly age, a Jewish boy would approach a rabbi. They would hang out with them. They would follow him. They would hope to be noticed by them. And then this might last six months, take a while, and at some point, the, the Jewish boy would say to the rabbi, may I follow you? And essentially, what was he saying? He was saying, do you think I have what it takes to become like you? And the rabbis in that day were known to be humble, and they might say something like, 
I notice your pursuit of God. I, I, I've noticed, you know, that, um, that you're following me, and, and I want to help you. But remember, the rabbis were looking for very specific things because not only did they want their disciples to, to be people who could become like them, they wanted their disciples, or Talmud, to be able to take on their yoke, was the phrase used. And what yoke was, was the interpretation or perspective that that rabbi had of the scriptures or, or how to live out the scriptures. So these rabbis, yeah, they wanted to make many Talmud, many disciples, but they wanted to make sure they selected the right ones who could spread their message. They could live it, they could teach it, they could spread it. So they only chose the ones who they really believed. Now, there was different methods that they you know, essentially like used to sort of test those future Talmuds. And one of them was what we could call an interactive question asking. So for instance, the, the rabbi might ask the potential Talmud, what's three plus three? And the Talmud wouldn't say six. The Talmud would say 12 divided by two, right? That's six, right? And then, the, then the, they wouldn't give the direct answer. Then, then another question would go like, okay, what's 18 divided by three? Now, they maybe don't use the numbers. That's just an example. But they, what they would do is they would do something like this. They would quote the rabbi a text from the scriptures. Let's say, I don't know, Numbers 31.3. They would quote whatever that verse is. And the response they were trying to get from the Talmud was quote the verse before that verse, Numbers 31.2, and quote the verse after that verse, Numbers 31.4, which I know all you guys can do, right? That's no problem. But, um, but this is what was going on, right? They were 15 years old. This was a test. Will they perform well, right? Will they, will, they, will they show this rabbi that they have what it takes, they have the exceptional knowledge, that they might say how many quotations from Habakkuk is in this book or how many prophecies are in Isaiah or something like that. I mean, this was tough stuff. And then, in most cases... The rabbi would say, oh, something like, you're a godly young man who knows the scripture. However, it's time for you to go home and apply your trade. Go be a carpenter, go be a fisherman, right? Go be a potter, et cetera, which is like serious rejection, right, if you ask me. But essentially, he was saying, God's gifted you, right? You're really valued, but you don't have the abilities, in my view, that you can become like me or that you can take on my yoke. So this is like the, the feeling of a, of a dream that you've long sought after being rejected or not coming true. But then there was the rare few that were chosen by the rabbi, that he thought they had what it take. And you know what that rabbi would say? Come follow me. Come follow me. And for that young aspiring Talmud who wanted to one day become a rabbi, this was an opportunity of a lifetime. For him and for the parents and the family too. This was a dream come true. So he would leave his family if he had to. He would leave his trade, fisherman or potter or carpenter or whatever they were. They would leave that in a second, right? They would leave their local synagogue that they were studying to go be with this rabbi. And sometimes it's known in that culture they would even come to live with the rabbi. Which, by the way, Jesus, best we can tell, actually at times lived with some of his disciples, so they would start maybe living one, but they, they were seeking after the very essence of the word tell me. They were seeking after to become like their master. And so they had this rabbi who said, yeah, I think you have what it takes. And let's just pause there for a minute. I mean, the idea of believing or the idea of someone believing in you is a powerful truth, right? That someone values what you have to offer. That someone says to you that you respect and admire and revere, that you have what it takes. I mean, that can have an extraordinary impact on your life. And for all of us, we have different insecurities, we have fears, we have desires, right? We have all that kind of going on. We have self-doubt. 
And when someone believes in us and sees the, the best part of us or the good parts of us, believes in our potential, man, that just lifts our spirits. And this brings us back to Jesus. Because remember, Jesus steps into this Galilean culture and, and he embraces, embodies this model of discipleship, right, that was invented in Galilee. And, and he did all that in alignment with what was happening in the culture. But, but as Jesus typically did when, when we opened, you know, the Gospels, we see him flip things upside down. So he does this in this case where, he, yes, he honors this system of discipleship and, and, and the rabbis, but, but then it comes time for him to choose his disciples. Remember, he's about 30 years old, and he prayerfully chooses these 12 disciples. Who, you know, he identifies who he's going to choose, and he approaches them. But Jesus didn't wait for them to approach him, if you notice. Right? He, didn't, he didn't wait for other people to come to him sort of desperately hoping, perhaps even you could say begging, to be affirmed or for, for him to say, right, you do have what it takes. Jesus flipped it upside down and he went and chose what the Bible calls ordinary unschooled men. That he chose them who he believed what? He believed that they could become like him. I mean, these weren't the guys, the 12, the original 12, they weren't the guys that were like the valedictorians. They weren't, they weren't the ones who made the all-star team. They were roughly high school sophomore age, maybe Matthew the tax collector was a little older, who to most people didn't look very extraordinary, but to Jesus, they looked pre-great. They looked pre-great because all the other stuff that mattered to these other rabbis, they didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus was looking for people who he believed could become like him, who he believed could, to, could live out what he's talking about, about the kingdom of God, about the gospel. And along comes Jesus, whose reputation preceded him, we could tell from the chronology of the gospels, and he says to these men, these young guys, he says, come follow me, right? He comes to Peter and Andrew, who he immediately, it says, drop their nets, lightning quick. And then he comes to, to, to um, James and John, who immediately, it says, left their boat and left their father Zebedee. Now imagine the conversation Zebedee goes home to mom and says, you know, she's like, where are the boys? You know, he's like, well, this rabbi came by and they went off with him, you know. But I mean, th this wasn't something we went and responded like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, th this is like, no, this is a dream come true. It's like a rabbi chose our kids and then it's Jesus of all rabbis. He chose our kids, right, that, that almost certainly had been passed by, by other rabbis, best that we can tell from the scriptures and our understanding. And I know this kind of sounds crazy, but this is the culture that we're going back into. And so Jesus approaches these disciples, and, and, he, and here's the thing. See, Jesus, we think of, oh, he just wants us to believe in him, and that's true. But Jesus also believes in you, and he also believed in them. He believed that they had something to offer. In fact, he believed not only they could become like him, which is extraordinary in and of itself, he believed this little group of 12 could change human history. And this question emerges, though, it lingers in me, I don't know about you, but this question of how do I actually become like Jesus? Because that's, you know, not like an easy thing to do if you ask me. How do you become like Jesus? How, how do you change the world? And, and it's interesting because there's, there's this little phrase in the first century uh, that I'll just say called, it's a phrase that's used many times in the scriptures, that, that someone would sit at the feet of another. So it's said of the Apostle Paul that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I can't ever say that word. But he had, a, he, had a, he had a rabbi, right? He sat at his feet. Now, this doesn't mean, right, that you sit at someone's feet in just a physical location, right? We, we know the story in Luke 10 where it says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. Now, this just doesn't mean, oh, I just sit all day 
listening to a podcast about Jesus and teaching the Bible or something, right? This is a posture toward life. This for Mary was a fundamental decision she made about her life. And so we can sit at Jesus' feet, yes, when we're kneeling in prayer, but also when we're making our son or daughter's lunch. We can sit at Jesus' feet when we're interacting with someone relationally. We can sit at Jesus' feet when we're, we're, we're responding to a text message or, or sending out social media. We can actually sit at Jesus' feet when we're binging on Netflix, although that gets a little sketchy there. But nonetheless, we can sit at Jesus' feet, meaning we can be postured toward God and wondering and asking, Jesus, how can I live like you? How can I embody and emulate who you are or, or what you would do if you were in my place? This is what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus. That in ordinary activities of life, because we tend to compartmentalize faith and, and, and you could say religion or spirituality with other things of life. But Jesus is saying, and the scriptures are telling us, to sit at Jesus' feet in the way that Mary did, right? Because it doesn't look the same in our day as it did the first century to follow Jesus. But what we can gather and extract is that we weren't created to live our own way. We were designed to follow Jesus, to follow his teachings, to emulate and strive to emulate who he is, to live like he would live if he were in our place. That's a disciple. And there's this little phrase or or blessing, I could say, that, that, that also emerged in the first century that described a disciple who got it right. So, so you ask the question, how do you become like Jesus? I start by saying you sit at his feet. You posture yourself with humility and a learning spirit that you're learning and listening and striving to live just like Jesus. And and there's a blessing from the first century that went like this. It said, may you always be covered by the dust of your rabbi. May you always be covered by the dust of your rabbi. In other words, right, they wore sandals in the dusty roads of Galilee that if you were a disciple that followed so closely because you wanted to do, you wanted to observe and you wanted to do exactly what your rabbi did, that you would get dust on your face and dust on your clothes and dust on your feet. The dustier the disciple was, the better it was. And the disciple wanted to keep his rabbi inside. And if, you, if we went back in time into Galilee and, that, and Capernaum, we would see disciples walking around being followed by these other young Talmud. We would see these rabbis walking around with these other Talmud. And if the, if the rabbi picked up a stick to chew on it, what do you think the Talmud would do? He'd pick up the stick to chew on it. Because they just wanted to emulate in every possible way. Every activity of life for a Talmud was an opportunity to learn from his rabbi how to live just like his rabbi. And Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus chose the 12 in order that they might be with him. So to become like Jesus, you gotta be with Jesus. And Jesus spends three years in close proximity to these disciples. He spends three years investing in them as they seek to learn and listen and live a different life. And they messed up, and we got the gospels, and for that matter, other places that tell us through history that they messed up and they got it wrong. Even at the very end, they were still getting it wrong. Peter in particular. But that doesn't discourage Jesus. It didn't change his strategy. And it doesn't change his view of us or how he approaches us either. And I'll close today with a story that shares in my life one other formative moment. It happened also when I was a college freshman because after I decided to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, as I said, I came to this church. I showed up. I still remember looking through the phone book, 
Stevens Creek Community Church. Didn't meet here, I met at Stevens Creek Elementary School. And I walk in that day and I met a guy named Marty Baker. You guys might know him. And essentially, over the days and weeks ahead, he put his arm around me. And without going into all the details, Marty believed in me. He saw something of value in me. He, he, he communicated to me that you matter. He invested in my life, and I remember moments of him inviting me not only to be an intern in this church, but he invited me into his home. He, he allowed me to preach. If you think this sermon's bad, you should have seen me when I was 19 years old. And people of this church walked up to me and said, great job, Steve, which their honesty is probably in question, just saying. No, you were very kind and encouraging. But Marty invested in me, and, and essentially he did, he did something that I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the words for it then, but, but he did what, what Paul says that he did. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Because see, this journey isn't meant to be alone. It's not meant to be done alone, right? That we follow Jesus as his disciple. We don't get to see him quite like the first century people did. But we get to follow other people who are, who are living for Jesus and living like Jesus and learn from them. Because here's the thing, Marty taught me the power of believing in somebody, the power of investing in someone, the power of seeing someone's potential. Because when you're believed in, that, that what you have matters, that, that, what you, that you have something to contribute to this world, that you can make a difference, that you can become somebody different, which all of you can. And that's how Jesus views us. It's how Marty viewed me. And then, and then Jesus and Marty did the same thing. He says, yes, and not only do I want you to be a disciple, I want you to make disciples. I want you to invest in others. Because you know, Jesus came along and he spent three years with his disciples. And then at one point late in the Gospel of John, we find that Jesus tells him he's gonna leave. Peter's not really happy about that, but Jesus leaves anyway. And why he leaves, and when he leaves, he says to them, essentially, it's like, you didn't choose me. It's like, I chose you. I chose you. Because I believe that you can become like me. And I believe you can change the world one relationship at a time. And I don't know about you, but that's not something I necessarily walk around and believe, certainly haven't for years. But when Jesus Christ comes to humanity, you and me both, to somebody who might feel so ordinary, who might feel so unqualified, that's exactly who he wants. He wants you to say, yes, I wanna follow you, Jesus. No turning back, wholehearted devotion. Because Jesus says, I didn't, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you because I believe that you can become like me. An ordinary woman, an ordinary man, just like you and me, can become like Jesus and can invest in other people who also can become like Jesus. And then we become a tribe and a body of Christ that has a ripple effect in the world like we can never imagine. He says, I want you, I chose you so that you could bear fruit, fruit that will last in this world. And Jesus today is looking for people like you and people like me because he wants to do something unique and different in this world. He wants to form you and shape you. He wants to change your very essence. He wants to transform your being. And he looks at you and says, I believe in you. And he collectively looks at us and says, I believe in us together as a tribe. If we could unite together and remain closely connected to Jesus and closely connected to each other, that we can make a difference for good in this world. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer?
Some of you may know Jesus as your Savior, but I want you to remember that he's also inviting you to be his disciple. You, you may have people in your life, for some, who don't believe in you, but I want to remind you that Jesus believes in you. You may not think you have what it takes. Deep down, you just don't believe that, but I want to remind you that Jesus believes you have what it takes, that he chose you. And Jesus believes you can embody the person that he designed you to be, that you can become like him, and that you, in fact, can change the world. God, we just pray. We, we thank you, God, that your grace extends to us love and forgiveness, and you invite us into a relationship with you that is eternal and real. And I pray for every person listening right now, God, that you would show them the importance of the fundamental decision they make in their life to follow you with passionate devotion. And when they don't believe in themselves, let them be reminded that you believe in them. Let them be reminded that you chose them. Let them be reminded that you have a dream for their life. To be a disciple, to make disciples, and to change this world one life at a time. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to StevensCreekChurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.